Hello and welcome back to the show. This is the Dustcast, the podcast dedicated to exploring the ancient cultural context of the Bible. Today I have an interview with Chris Date from Rethinking Hell. We're going to talk about eternal uh, destinies and he's going to advocate in particular for a view called conditionalism or annihilationism. This is actually the second episode I've done that focuses on views of hell. If you have not uh, listened to it, I'd encourage you to also check out episode number eight with Brad Jersak. Um, I did want to start out with maybe just saying a word about why I'm tackling this topic. There have been perhaps uh, not too many things which have been as divisive in the Christian community recently as um, different views of the afterlife. And so in a podcast dedicated to looking at the ancient context of the Bible, um, and one where I have called for church unity. Uh, why tackle this issue? And I, I think it's just that as I personally have looked into um, deeper linguistic and historical cultural context around things like um, Gehenna and Sheol and the Jewish view of the afterlife, I have discovered that there is potentially a lot more going on there than what I was previously aware of. And so I'm not here to advocate for any one view. In fact, the reason I wanted to have at least two different uh, experts on in Brad Jersak and Chris State to present differing views was just to give you a, a broader view of what various Christians out there believe. And um, if you end up not changing anything about your view of the afterlife, I think that's fine. I just want to... Uh, present some different perspectives so we can all kind of deepen our understanding of uh, what the scriptures could be saying. So really, um, I think you'll you'll hear this throughout the episode, but there are at least three positions uh, that are being taken these days. One is conditionalism, which Chris will talk about. Um, Brad Jersak sort of goes through all of the views in his book, but then lands on what I believe he calls hopeful inclusionism which you might also hear called um, universal reconciliationism or uh, evangelical universalism. And then, of course, eternal conscious torment is the view that many of us are probably the most familiar with, uh, depending on what faith group you grew up in. Uh, you'll hear Chris refer to it as the traditional view, and it, it has probably been the most traditional view within Christianity since at least the time of Dante or so, um, although perhaps not... Um, the dominant view dating all the way back to the first century. Um, so with that, here is the interview with Chris, and uh, I hope that it is interesting. Yeah, well, I really appreciate you making the time for the podcast. It's my pleasure. Why don't you give us a little overview of what you're doing over at Rethinking Hell? Well, at Rethinking Hell, we are conservative evangelicals who are committed to the authority and the infallibility of the scriptures. In my case, I affirm the inerrancy of scriptures, in fact. Um, but we have become convinced that it does not teach the traditional view of hell as eternal conscious torment, but rather that it teaches conditional immortality or annihilationism, which are terms we'll discuss here pretty soon, I imagine. Um, and that's kind of our primary goal is advancing that doctrine, promoting it, defending it, and so forth. But it, coming in at a very close second, I think, is uh, modeling and fostering and encouraging uh, healthy, ironic dialogue 
uh, between people who hold to all three views, uh, all three major Christian views on final punishment. Uh, and to that end, we interview conditionalists as well as an, uh, uh, universalists and traditionalists on the podcast. And we engage with such people in our, in our blog. And, and our goal in all of these kinds of interactions is to demonstrate that we as Christians can, uh, can disagree lovingly but passionately on these, on this topic. Um, exercising, you know, rigorous scholarship and, and careful exegesis and so forth, but at the same time, interacting with one another lovingly um, and charitably, uh, according to the kind of calling that I think as Christians we've been called. So that's sort of our twofold goal at Rethinking Hell. And, and as you've already mentioned, we've got the website at RethinkingHell.com where people can also find the podcast and there's some forums there. Um, we've also published two books, and I'm negotiating a third book deal with a major publisher right now, which I'm hoping to be able to announce details about as soon as, um, hope, you know, Lord willing, they, they uh, accept the proposal. Uh, and we do yearly conferences. A couple of years ago, we had our inaugural conference in Houston, Texas at the Lanier Theological Library to celebrate the life and work of Edward Fudge. Uh, last year, we had our second conference at Fuller Theological Seminary in Pasadena, California, and in October of this year, we'll have our third conference uh, in or near London uh, in early October. Um, so there are a variety of things that we're doing. Uh, I spoke at an ETS conference in, a, a couple of months ago and at a couple of churches in Grand Rapids. So we just try to get um, the, the message of conditional immortality out there and encourage uh, people who hold to various of these three views to engage in one another, engage with one another lovingly rather than, um, you know, with the kind of vitriol and animosity that so often uh, characterizes this debate. Yeah, that's great. You were uh, just in my backyard, but it was before I even knew about you guys. I'm just a, a matter of minutes from the Lanier Theological Library. Hmm. Well, maybe one day we'll make it back there. Yeah, I hope so. Um, well, so tell me a little bit more about your story, at least on this topic. Um, ha have you always held to this view? And if not, how did you come to view conditionalism as the more biblically sound doctrine? I became a Christian uh, when I was around 20, which was uh, about 16 years ago now. And, um, you know, I had had very little exposure to Christian doctrine prior to that. Um, you know, I was essentially an, an, an atheist and I hadn't been a church attender or anything like that. And yet I knew um, just from popular media and from, um, you know, a variety of other things that we sort of imbibe as we grow up in American culture, I knew that the de facto Christian view was eternal conscious torment when it comes to the nature of hell. And so that's the view that I held. Um, and as I encountered uh, cults like the Jehovah's Witnesses, I, um, I, I learned in doing apologetics with them how it is to defend the traditional view of hell. And, and I did so. I, I defended it uh, for a number of years. And then um, to make a very long story less long, but still <laughs> probably kind of long, um, I had a gentleman by the name of Edward Fudge on my personal podcast at theapologetics.com, uh, which you know I'm sure you'll include a link to in, in your show notes. And uh, I had him on the sh on the show first to discuss the Churches of Christ, uh, which is the um, movement that he hails from the, the movement that he uh the tradition tradition that he was uh, that he grew up in um i wanted to l expose my listeners to a little bit about the the history of the churches of christ which i'm not a part of by the way um and uh and i had him on a second time after that to discuss the fire that consumes which is the book that he wrote and had recently been published in a third edition um which promotes the doctrine of conditional immortality or annihilationism and it's really sort of the seminal work on the topic it's the one that um conditionalists today point to as 
the most influential on the topic in 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 the recent um in recent days so i had him on the show to to discuss um the fire that consumes i had very little exposure to the view again outside of my interaction with the cult uh but i had recently um been doing a little bit of ministry on another topic the the the, the timing of the end times um i had been um doing some ministry with a friend with a friend of mine glenn peoples who i learned uh was a conditionalist and uh i remember that he when I was challenging him on a, on a particular passage in Scripture that, that stemmed back to Isaiah sixty six twenty four, which is a passage that we'll probably discuss, uh, he surprised me when he pointed out that the 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 um, object of the fire that wouldn't be quenched and the worms that wouldn't die were explicitly said to be corpses, and it got my it got me interested, and I was like, you know, what's going on here? I, I assumed that this was a passage that um, taught that living people were going to be tormented forever. So, with my interest having been sparked, I interviewed Edward Fudge, and what I did was. In the first hour of that interview, I gave him, I, I got to know him and I gave him an opportunity to present a positive case for his view, insisting that his view, his case be, uh, biblical rather than emotional or philosophical. And then in the second hour of the interview, I just threw at him every possible objection that I could think of, every possible objection that I could find online that listeners could send me and so forth. And I was very impressed both by his positive case and by his answers to my objections. And so I found myself on the fence. And in the months that followed, uh, I continued to you know do a ton of research, and I listened to debates, and I read books, I hosted a debate, and then in uh, toward the end of the year that this happened, um, and I'm drawing a blank as to what year it was, it was a few years ago, I participated in my own interview, or sorry, my own debate, um, thinking you know I'm almost convinced of this view. Let's see what happens if I you know uh, if I hold my feet to the fire and 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 try to defend this in a debate, and um, found. That, at least from my perspective anyway, and I think the perspective of many of my listeners, uh, that, you know, that the, the view that I was almost convinced of was clearly the winner in that debate. And so I embraced it and uh, was soon thereafter invited to participate in Rethinking Hell by its founder, Peter Grice. Um, and, you know, it's just kind of gone on from there. Yeah, well, that's great. Yeah, thanks for the, the background. Um, I actually hail from the Churches of Christ as well, um, Edward Fudge, and I share the same alma mater at ACU, and mm. uh, he was the one that introduced me to you first, so yeah, it was my connection and trying to speak to him initially that uh, he pointed me over to you, so I'm glad he did. I was happy to. And we've been uh, throwing around the terms quite a bit already, but I'm, I'm assuming not everyone in my audience is going to be equally familiar with the terms, so you've mentioned conditionalism and annihilationism. I think on your website you give separate definitions for each of those. Are those two sort of different things? You could hold one but not the other, or are they just uh, kind of mutual terms? I see them as two sides of the same coin. If you look at the traditionalist literature, and I suppose even some conditionalist literature, you'll you'll find people claiming that one that they're that they're you know that one has to do with ceasing to exist when you die and that's it, and then the other has to do with future resurrection and then ceasing to exist, and then other people think it's the exact opposite. Um, I, I think that's I don't think that's the case. I think it's really simple. I think they're two sides of the same coin, and what I mean by that is. Um, the conditionalism is short for the phrase conditional immortality, which is a mouthful, but all it means is that immortality is not something that is uh, naturally um, granted to all human beings. It's not a part of what it means to be human. It's something that is conditioned. Uh, we are not granted immortality uh, unless we meet a condition, and that condition is being united in faith to Jesus Christ, which 
just in case your listeners uh, are mixed in terms of their being Calvinists in some cases and Arminians and others, when we say that immortality is conditioned on faith, we don't mean that um, we, I'm a Calvinist. So by that, I don't obviously mean that you know human beings. I'm not denying the unconditional uh, election of God as a Calvinist, but that's beside the point. Um, so, so the conditional immortality means that immortality is something that is conditioned. Uh, you, you don't automatically get it just by being a human being. You have to be given it. And that condition is, is saving faith in Jesus Christ. And on the surface, that doesn't sound all that controversial. Uh, but the problem is if, if you just look at what traditionalists, that is people who have historically, um, promoted the, the traditional view of hell as, as eternal conscious torment, their view of hell is not sort of, disembodied souls floating around in hell forever uh and it's not zombies walking around uh in in some sort of quasi human suffering the, the traditional view is one in which resurrected human beings the lost have been resurrected brought back to life and are made immortal so that they can live forever in hell and you can see this explicitly said throughout the tradition throughout the history um both the affirmation that the risen lost will be immortal and that they will live forever so conditional immortality is the denial of that. It's saying, no, the only people who will be given immortality are those who uh, are united to Christ in faith. Um, so so that's, the, that's the one side of the coin. It has to do with life, who it is that will be the recipients of life, immor- uh, you know, immortal, eternal life. The other side of the coin uh, is what I think annihilationism is, which is it describes the fate of those who don't meet the condition. And if those who don't meet the condition, therefore, don't receive immortality, then they will be resurrected still mortal. And they will, uh, instead of living forever, they will perish. They will die. They will be destroyed. And if dualism is true, if human beings are both physical and have some sort of a soul or a spirit that lives on after the first death, we have indications in Scripture that it too, that, that immaterial part of man, the soul or the spirit, it too will die with the body in the second death, even if it lived on after the death of the body in the first death. So you have on the one hand conditional immortality, meaning that immortality and everlasting life is only going to be given to the saved. And the other side of the coin is annihilationism, which means that the finally impenitent, those who don't meet the condition of saving faith in Christ, will die, perish, be destroyed, and never, ever live again. Mm. Yeah, that's helpful. Thanks. Um, As we look at the biblical text, I mean, as you pointed out, the eternal conscious torment has been sort of longstanding thought of as the traditional view but if we go back to the text, I'm curious what it is you see there that uh, convinces you to, to adopt conditionalism instead. And I know that um, as I was reading through Edward Prudge's book, it's just sort of one point of reference. Um, he starts with the Old Testament and, and says that many Christian theologians think that really the Old Testament doesn't say anything about the state of the afterlife, um, or at least very little about eternal destinations. And yet he found indications there that, that he thought uh, pointed towards conditionalism. Would, would you agree with that assessment? I, I would. Um, I think there are a couple of passages that I think are pretty clearly eschatological, um, although there's some debate over that, of course. Uh, Daniel 12.2, for example, seems pretty clearly to speak of future resurrection, um, at which point the, uh, the righteous will go into eternal life. Um, but the wicked will rise instead to everlasting shame uh, and contempt, to, to, to shame and everlasting contempt. And uh, traditionalists will often say, look, if, they raise, if they're raised to everlasting contempt, then they therefore must be suffering forever. But that's not, that doesn't really uh, reflect the meaning of, of this text. First of all, 
it explicitly says that only the righteous are going to be are going to rise to eternal life. So at least on the surface, the natural corollary would be that the wicked won't rise to life. And yet that's exactly what traditionalists believe will happen to the lost. They will come back to life and live forever. Um, so right on the surface of it, my, you know, the conditional immortality and annihilationism fits this text better. Um, but as far as the everlasting contempt, the, the thing is, is that the word translated contempt only appears in only in one other place in, in the Old Testament, and that's in Isaiah 66, 24, where it describes the, 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 the feeling that the saved have toward the, the corpses of God's slain enemies. They are contemptible. They are an abhorrence. Um, so eternal contempt doesn't describe one's, uh, the, 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 the risen wicked's suffering forever. It describes their being held in contempt forever. And it doesn't say one way or the other whether or not they will experience anything forever. Uh, and as I already pointed out, it seems to indicate that they won't because it will say that only, it says only the saved will rise to eternal life. And then the other passage is Isaiah 66, 24, which is often appealed to by traditionalists because it says that their, um, you know, God's enemies, their, 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 uh, fire will not be quenched and their womb will not die. And the assumption that traditionalists make is that what that means is that the fire will forever have fuel to burn and the uh, worm will, have, will forever have food to eat. Uh, but just looking at how these, these concepts are used throughout Scripture, um, unquenchable fire, uh, unstoppable scavengers, throughout Scripture these, these ideas communicate complete destruction. Uh, a fire which is unquenchable is a fire that can't be put out, and because it can't be put out, it won't be stopped from completely consuming things. And, and we can see this in parallel uh, or in other places where that idiom is used. So I think we've got at least those two um, texts that we can um, point to. But I think that there's also a, a broader principle of divine justice that one finds in the Old Testament. Um, and before I explain it, this is important because some people criticize Edward Fudge's use of the Old Testament uh, when discussing final punishment because what their argument will be is that many of the texts that Fudge points to um, are probably just describing what people's fates are in this life, how it is that God is going to punish them in the here and now. And yeah, I think many of them do describe that. The problem is the, the, there are dozens upon dozens upon dozens of texts in the Old Testament, which seem to indicate that, uh, like I said, a, a principle of divine justice, which is that um, the wicked will finally be destroyed, uh, and 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 in shame, you know, and and in violently and painfully. But as we all know, many 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 wicked people in this life experience nothing of the sort. A great number of wicked people have died in a lap of luxury, in peace, um, in, in high positions of, of status and honor, viewed as, you know, um, incredibly, uh, you know, righteous people or, or good people or wealthy people or whatever, powerful people. By great multitudes of people, they're not held in shame. They're not held in contempt. They don't experience a violent, painful death. Uh, they, they fall asleep pretty comfortably and, and uh, you know, no one's the wiser. So So the question that Edward Fudge asks in his book is, are these texts true or are they not? If they're true, if they're not true, uh, well then, then that would explain why some people that are wicked don't experience that kind of punishment in this life. But if they are true, then what they seem to indicate is that there's this broad principle of divine justice, which means that even if these texts don't tell us that they aren't specifically about what's going to happen in the eschaton, um, nevertheless, they indicate that the way that God finally deals with, justice to the wicked is by death uh, and shame, things that, uh, you know, painful death, things that don't happen in this life to the wicked all the time. So those are the kinds of things that I look to in the Old Testament as um, 
you know, having as far as teaching conditional conditionalism and annihilationism in the Old Testament. Yeah, I think you anticipated one of my um, <laughs> concerns there, because I, I did feel like that was probably one of the weaker sides of the argument. I mean, so first of all, I'll start out by saying I, I completely agree that the, um, uh, shall we say, Hebraic or ancient Near Eastern conception of the human in the Old Testament is not immortal. I, I don't see innate immortality described there at all. So I, I completely agree with conditionalism in terms of, um, you know, we are mortal beings. And if we're going to continue existing, we are entirely dependent upon God for that. Um, but it, through some of the argument of, um, you know, the Old Testament talking about the, uh, you know, destruction of the wicked as their end telos uh, in, you know, in terms of eternal life, I, I did feel like sometimes verses were perhaps stretched a bit there. You know, one that gets used is Psalm 37, 38. It says, but the transgressors shall be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. And all by itself, you know, that sounds like it very well could be talking about the afterlife. But if you look just a couple verses back, I mean, the psalmist is saying, I have seen a wicked, ruthless man spreading himself like a green laurel tree, but he passed away. And behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, he could not be found. And so, you know, it seems like a very here and now earthly, you know, I, I was looking for this man and I couldn't find him because he had passed away. And even if you look in other verses in that same psalm about the reward of the righteous, I mean, it's it's that they'll have abundance in times of famine, um, that they won't see their children begging for bread, that they will have a stronghold in a time of trouble. And, you know, I think many times when we see people in, in the Bible in general, but especially in kind of the Hebraic uh, culture of the Old Testament saying, God save me, and talking about the future, it's often in terms of just the very real life concerns of what they're dealing with right now, wars oh, and yeah. famine and, you know, uh, their their day-to-day -day concerns. Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, and, and that's why I say what I think we can, except for the two passages I mentioned and, you know, what, what Genesis 2 and 3 have to say about mortality, uh, besides those passages, I think that by and large, we can't look at these texts as having specifically to do with final punishment, you know, final eschatological punishment. But again, I think that what we get is an overall picture of divine justice, um, one in which God is not does not dole out justice by immortalizing people, whether so they can endure eternal torment or whether so they can endure some torment until they finally repent. That's not the way that the Old Testament pictures God doling out justice. The way that the Old Testament pictures God doling out justice is by destroying people. And that's why I say that even if texts like this and plenty of others aren't specifically about final punishment, I do think they can, they, they lean toward, um, or, or they lend themselves more toward conditionalism than toward either any form of universalism or traditionalism. Yeah, no, that, that's fair enough. Um, well, so let's move more into maybe the Second Temple Judaism kind of time period. So, intertestamental period or into the first century, um, what do you see in terms of the cultural context there? We get a lot of words Jesus uses like Gehenna that seem to resonate with the local culture of, of his day and time. Um, when you look at that, that time period, what sort of um, clues about uh, how we should think about end times do you see? 
Well, I think that depends on which scholar of Second Temple literature you speak to. <laughs> uh, if, if you talk to um, traditionalist scholarship, you're going to get an answer that, oh, yeah, the, the Jewish view was in, in Second Temple Juda Judaism that the wicked would go to Gehenna and suffer there forever or something like that. Um, but if you talk to scholars that uh, are not traditionalists or, um, or maybe don't have as much of a dog in the fight, what they'll tell you is that uh, the literature of Second Temple Judaism was very diverse on this topic. Um, you did have, apparently, some writings which uh, seem to lend themselves toward the doctrine of eternal torment. Um, in particular, Judith, for example, uh, appears to sort of radically transform Isaiah's scene in chapter 66 in which God's enemies have been slain and they're being eaten up by fire and maggots. Judith takes that passage and, and, and transforms it into uh, living people um, being tormented by worms in their flesh and so forth. So you do have some texts which, which indicate that, although there, there's a good – I think we can ask the question whether some of these intertestamental Second Temple Judaism texts – um, are using a language of eternal torment in, in a um, in an apocalyptic way, uh, and, and in fact, there are some texts that have language that sounds very much like eternal torment. Which, uh, if you just read a little further on, will will um, uh, say something you know more aligned with annihilationism. Uh, and so, for example, um, one scholar is by the name of David Instone Brewer, and he is an expert on this uh, on this topic. And he's got a chapter in our second book. That second book is called A Consuming Passion, Essays on Hell and Immortality in Honor of Edward Fudge. And David Instone Brewer has a uh, chapter uh, – I'm trying to flip to it right now. He's got uh, chapter 14. It's called Eternal Punishment in First Century Jewish Thought. But what David Instone Brewer does is he cites a number of texts, including some scrolls uh, at Qumran, which say this. The judgment of all who walk in such ways will be multiple afflictions at the hand of all angels of perdition, everlasting damnation in the wrath of God's furious vengeance, never-ending terror and reproach for all eternity. And you and you read that and you think, oh gosh, you know, here's an example of eternal torment in the Second Temple literature um, between the Testaments. Uh, but immediately it goes on with a shameful extinction in the fire of hell's outer darkness. Utter destruction with neither remnant nor rescue. So you you see a lot of texts like this in the intertestamental intertestamental literature where they use apocalyptic language that sounds like eternal torment, but they also say that the the final end of the wicked is is complete destruction or annihilation. So I would say that the the, the literature is mixed um, at best. Uh, you have some who uh, some texts which indicate uh, eternal torment and some which teach annihilation. I'm not aware of any literature that. Uh, that, that makes a good case that there was universalism very well represented in the intertestamental literature, but, you know, I, I'm not a scholar in this area. There, there are two additional things that I'll call out, though, in addition to this. Uh, there's one guy, uh, one author by the name of Kim Popaiwano, and he's got a chapter in actually both of our books, our first and our second one. Uh, and one of his, and he recently published a few years ago a book called uh, The Geography of Hell in the Teaching of Jesus. And he looks at the, the word Gehenna that Jesus uses in the New Testament, and he makes a case that that word, which is a um, sort of the New Testament transliteration of the Old Testament Valley of the Sons of Hinnom, 
He makes a case that this word Gehenna had not yet become this ubiquitous toponym, this uh, this word that would bring readers' attention to um, final punishment. It hadn't yet become that. Uh, when we look at other places where Gehenna is used in Second Temple literature, Kim Papaiwano makes the argument that these are all actually post-Jesus. Um, and so he would argue that Gehenna is actually a term that, for the most part, Jesus coined. And so his audience, his listeners would have had nowhere, nothing in their, you know, cloud of ideas in their, in their minds that they would have associated Gehenna with except the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom in the Old Testament. And throughout the Old Testament, this valley is a place that's promised one day to become a valley of slaughter, a place where God's enemies will be slain and their corpses will be laid out, unex- or exposed to the elements to be consumed by fire and by maggots. Uh, and, and, and if Kim Papaiwano is right, then this would suggest that when Jesus uses that term, since if he's right, there would be no other literature that uses the word Gehenna for them to 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 have in their minds when they hear Jesus use the word Gehenna. The only other place it would have gone is the Old Testament, and, and they would have assumed he was talking about final death and destruction rather than eternal torment. The other thing I was going to point out was that there's um, you know the research that has been done into the second death that idiom in the intertestamental literature suggests that with all but one arguable exception, uh, the second death was understood by Second Temple Jews to be either, on the one hand, um, an exclusion from future resurrection, so they would remain dead forever, or literally dying a second time after resurrection. And either of those two is really consistent with what we conditionalists think, uh, but doesn't really fit well with the traditional view. And that one exception, it's not even clear that there it's talking about eternal torment, and this is a whole other debate I'm not going to get into. So to sort of summarize all of this, at best literature is mixed. Uh, the literature that uh, whose language Jesus uses, um, some of it seems to teach eternal torment, and some of it seems to teach annihilation. Um, and so we really have to go with the text itself. We can't answer the question by looking at the uh, literature upon which Jesus may have been drawing but there is a case to be made that the that the word Gehenna that he used and the idiom of second death that John used in the book of Revelation were uh, idioms, were words, phrases that their audience, their listeners would have understood to be teaching something like annihilationism. Yeah, no, I, I think that's really helpful. And actually, the, the, the first thing that came to mind uh, for me was I have heard somebody say before that if anybody tells you what the Jewish view was, that they're wrong because there was never just one Jewish view. And so I think you're right that the literature is mixed. I mean, there was a, a tremendous variety of perspectives across almost everything in, in uh, Judaism of the day. So, so yeah, not, not one unified perspective generally. And yeah, then the, the one, the one exception being that I'm not aware of any second temple literature promoting universalism. Okay. Yeah. And I'm not enough of a scholar in that area to comment either. Although actually that the other thing I was going to point out um, does sort of tie me to a more modern day. I don't think you would like the word universalist, but uh, someone on more of that hope for universal reconciliation into the spectrum. Um, the comment about Gehenna referring to the Valley of Hinnom in the Old Testament, uh, I've actually heard from Brad Jersak as well. And, and it strikes me as a pretty solid argument, actually. I, a lot of what we hear about Gehenna later being this garbage dump of the city and ongoing bonfires and stuff does seem kind of suspiciously later developed. And from what I have found in the Bible, um, there are always so many connections to prior biblical passages and so much resonance and echoes within the biblical text. 
Um, you know, Jesus quotes from the Old Testament so frequently, and all the, the New Testament authors really refer to, to Old Testament themes and images. And so the idea that this is really referring mostly back to Jeremiah's description of the Valley of Hinnom, I think, is is pretty intuitive and, and make, is a pretty strong argument. Um, I think then where Brad Jersak makes maybe a, a different move than you do is he uh, he probably reads that as more of what may be a preterist kind of reading of seeing it mostly within history, that this is pointing towards destruction of armies within history. And then he holds out some hope for reconciliation after the recon, uh, the resurrection, I think. Sure. And, and I, I'm a preterist. Uh, I, I, hate to use the phrase partial preterist. I think that's a terrible term for it, but I'm a preterist. And so I'm sympathetic to that. Uh, I'm not convinced that one can do that with all of Jesus's use of Gehenna. Um, you know, I think one, I think uh, as mistaken as traditionalists are to assume that Jesus use of Gehenna matches up with the way that term had come to mean, you know, what had come to mean to un, uh, non-Christian Jews after Jesus's time to the extent that that's a mistake, I also think it's a mistake to assume that because Jesus is using the word Gehenna, which in the Old Testament was this this Valley of Hinnom, that therefore he's always referring to uh, the pending destruction of Jerusalem within the lifetime of his generation. I think either of those are extremes, um, and I think it's very plausible and I think more consistent with the rest of Scripture that Jesus is in fact using Gehenna as a toponym, a, a, a way of um, – referring to future punishment by means of a recognizable um, historical situation, that of the Valley of the Sons of Hinnom. Uh, but even if I were to become convinced that everywhere Jesus talks about Gehenna, he's actually talking about 70 AD, um, I think you'd still have both some biblical themes, like the nature of and recipients of immortality, as well as specific texts, which would not um, could not be answered by this kind of preterist approach to Gehenna passages. And so, for example, um, there's no way, there's just no way to take the second death of Revelation and place and, and locate that in the first century. It's just not possible. Yeah. Um, Reve- the, the, the imagery and John's interpretation of it and God's interpretation of it, I think, make pretty clear uh, that it's talking about what happens after future resurrection and judgment. Um, and, and there's just no way to locate that in the first century. And so then the argument becomes, well, what does the second death mean? And as I've already pointed out in the literature, in the Second Temple literature, second death meant exactly that, dying a second time or at the very least not participating in resurrected life. And so as universalists and traditionalists have to do, um, they, they twist the second death, I think, to mean something uh, completely unintuitive, something that's not consistent with the way that idiom was used in the intertestamental literature. And, you know, if, if, you're, if you go on to ask me a question that I think you're going to ask me based on the email you sent me, there's more I'll have to say about that as well. So I guess I'm just saying that I, I'm aware of the, the, the preterist uh, you know, the, the preterist. The answer to Gehenna passages, a la Brad Jersak and others, uh, but I'm not convinced that even if one accepts those, that they that, that it particularly helps the case for universalism. Yeah, I think we're both making kind of a similar argument that it's more than just individual texts, um, which I do admittedly have a pretty strong allergy to what I see as proof texting. <laughs> um, but I, I have found a lot of value in trying to locate my theology within that greater narrative and worldview and try to understand um the the ancient worldview more fully so yeah why don't you comment on just as you look at the worldview of the old testament specifically i guess but the biblical the biblical witness kind of in its entirety um how would you sum up how that influences your view of eternal life slash punishment yeah 
Well, we've already mentioned some of them. You know, I mentioned that I mentioned that there's a, a, what seems to be a divine principle of justice in the Old Testament, uh, which indicates that God does not dole out justice by immortalizing people, whether temporarily or eternally, um, but rather by by destroying them. And I also mentioned in passing the issue of immortality. Uh, what readers need to do, I think, is to go back and look at Genesis two and three, because even if what God meant when he told Adam that on the day you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. Even if what God meant was that he would experience some sort of a spiritual death on the day he ate of the fruit, which I don't think is the case, by the way. But even if he did, the very ne- in the very next chapter, uh, what God, God excludes Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden so that they won't have access to the tree of life. And lacking access to the tree of life, it says they will not live forever. So, uh, so, and this theme runs throughout the whole Old Testament. You know, God says to the people of Israel, I set before you the, you know, uh, the, the choice of life or the choice of death. Um, the, the way of God is the way to life, but, uh, but the way that's apart from God is, is, is the way of death. This is, you know, all throughout scripture. And, uh, you do have, as I mentioned, certain Old Testament texts which indicate that there's hope beyond the grave. Um, Daniel 12.2 is one example, if not one of the only examples, uh, which indicate that um, although mortality is the uh, common human experience in, in the here and now, one day the righteous will be raised to eternal life. And so you do have that hope. But but again, the overall picture is that human beings are mortal um, apart from uh, life from God. All right, well... I think that may be actually a good point to end on as far as the the discussion of um, conditionalism for the audience, because I think you summed it up nicely there. Um, And I I certainly will put links to your your books and your blogs on the show notes side. Um, Anything else that you want to, I'll give you the the chance for the last word here as far as kind of landing the episode. Anything else you want to leave my audience with before we uh, wrap up completely? You know, um, so many conditionalists are excluded from fellowship in churches or excluded from ministries or excluded from from schools, whether as teachers or as students, because they hold to this view or to some other um, alternative to the tradition to the tradition. And I think it grieves the heart of God when when his people divide over this secondary issue. In so long, so long as the people who are doing the uh, or who are holding to these different views are doing it because they think it's what is most faithful to Scripture, um, the church can't com- can't complete its mission, can't uh, work together when they're divided on this topic and when people are excluded from fellowship and ministry and education with one another. And so, my encouragement to you traditionalists is: read the literature, uh, hear, listen to the Rethinking Hell podcast, and, and view and read the blog and so forth, and realize that you can in good conscience partner with us in ministry and 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 work with us to share the saving gospel with the world that so desperately needs it, even if we disagree on this topic. Um, and if anyone wants to reach out to me with any concerns they have or questions they have, they can email me at chrisdate at rethinkinghell.com, and I'd be happy to um, answer any questions that you have or concerns you have, because I really don't think that this is an issue worth dividing over. Well, I think the uh, the call to the unity of the church is a great note to end on and something with which I can wholeheartedly agree. So um, thanks again for your time, Chris. It's been great. I really appreciate you joining the episode. You're very welcome. Have a good one. You too. Thanks for joining me for another episode of The Dustcast. As always, you can find show notes at thedustcast.com. That's a great place to leave a comment about an episode or 
ideas for future episodes, or any questions you have, you can email me at jason at dustcast.com, and you can find The Dustcast on Twitter, Facebook, and most of your favorite podcast subscription services, including iTunes. If you like what you hear, leave me a rating or a review. I'd appreciate it. And of course, let me know what's on your mind and what you'd like to hear next. Go and have a blessed week.